0: All right, if you would, take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Colossians. We'll look tonight at an overview of those brief chapters. Colossians is one of those brief books of the New Testament that is just jam-packed with good insight, a celebration of who Jesus is and all that he's done for us. It's one of those four prison epistles that we've made mention of over the past couple of weeks, Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. Colossians specifically is closely linked to the book of Ephesians. About one-third of Colossians is, is reflected or, or used, or one-third of Ephesians is used in Colossians. They share one-third of their content together. So, uh, in both of these cases, Ephesians and Colossians, Tychicus is identified as the deliverer of the message. So, in that, there's a connection between Colossians and Philemon as well. Not only is Ephesians and Colossians connected, but Colossians and Ephesians are connected. Because Colossians 4.9 tells us that Tychicus is delivering the message, but there is a man named Onesimus who comes with him, one who is of the Colossian people which I take to mean he was at one time in his life a resident. That's his hometown. Colossae is Onesimus' hometown. The book of Philemon is all about Onesimus, the former slave of Philemon, and Paul's appeal to Philemon to release Onesimus from his obligations to Philemon so that he might serve freely within the kingdom. If if you have interest in the chronology of the New Testament, it seems to me, that Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon are all written simultaneously, and they're all delivered by Tychicus and Onesimus, whereas Philippians comes later in this roughly five-year stint of imprisonment that Paul suffers in his ministry. So that's where the book of Colossians ultimately lands. Th- there are a few key themes that I want us to focus on in our time tonight, although you know, just I was just reading through Colossians again before coming out, And there's scarcely anything here that we'd want to sort of move over very quickly, that the substance of the book of Colossians is quite rich. And you'll see what I mean as we study along. The first, one of the first, and one of the most noteworthy themes in the book of Colossians is its high Christology. I have made reference to that in your outline as the preeminence of Christ. Paul says, my desire is that Christ would have first place or be preeminent in all things, that he wouldn't be one of our priorities, but but the framework upon which our priorities are established, that he would be foundational before all things and above all things in our life. You have this prayer for the people that begins in verse number nine, that transitions by the time we get to verse 13 into this celebration of who Jesus is. Paul is praying for the church, and then he transitions into this theological explanation of the many benefits, the attributes of Christ's character and all that he's done for us. Start in verse 9 with me, chapter 1 and verse 9. Paul says, "...for this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We're asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding." So that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the father who's enabled you to share in the saints inheritance in the light. Just a a summarization of Paul's prayer for the church there. He asked that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, that they would know what God's will is, that they would walk worthy of the Lord, which I take to mean there'd be a commitment to holiness in them as they seek the face of Jesus, that their lives would be conformed to the likeness of his image, that they would grow in their knowledge of God, that with each day that passes, they would know God all the more, that they would be strengthened with all power and that they would give thanks this heavy emphasis here on knowing God and knowing God as a means to the end that we would enjoy power, knowing God as a means to the end that we would grow in grace, knowing God as a means to the end that we would be, be strengthened in these ways, walking worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, seems to contribute to the transition that takes place in verse number 13. This is one of my favorite passages to preach when I have occasion to preach elsewhere because it's just a Jesus passage. There there, there are more than a dozen references to to the work of Jesus, more than a dozen descriptions of what Jesus has done for us. In verse 13, the Bible says here, "...He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves." The language of Exodus is used here. The people of Israel taken out of the domain of darkness... "...under bondage and oppression in the the land of Egypt. They were removed by the providence and faithfulness of God, headed in the direction of the land that flowed with milk and honey. What they experienced, in part, we have, by the power of Jesus, now experienced in full. We were dead in sins and trespasses. We lived in the domain of darkness, but we have been picked up. Our citizenship has been changed." Our feet have been firmly planted in the kingdom of Jesus. We now stand on gospel ground. In verse fourteen, the Bible says we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in Him. A, a, a more sort of uh, rugged, more broken translation, but one that that really speaks to what I think is intended here is that it's to say in Him we have redemption first. In him we have forgiveness of sins. In him we have redemption. It's reference to this first century concept of being redeemed from our slavery. If that's what's intended, and I think it is, it couples nicely with the idea of having once belonged to the kingdom of darkness and now being delivered into the kingdom of Jesus, the son of God's Great love, our citizenship has changed because our status or our standing has changed. Once we were enslaved to sin, but now we have been made free by the power of the gospel. He has paid the price of our pardon. It is in Christ we have been released from our slavery. In him we have the forgiveness of sin. Jesus has forgiven all our sins. We say that so much, it's one of those phrases that suffers familiarity fatigue with the church times. But the notion that God has forgiven all our sins is a remarkable thought. In this world, it can be a difficult thing to find forgiveness. And in our culture, where so much, so much of the seeking of forgiveness is feigned or fake we can ourselves become quite cynical and slow to grant forgiveness. All of us have experienced episodes in our lives where we wished there were some way we could turn back the hands of time and undo the dreadful thing we'd just done. All of us have experienced that. Either by godly sorrow or worldly guilt, we have wished for the ability to turn back the hands of time. What we are afforded in Christ is not so much a turning back of the hands of time, but that our past, our present, and our future sins have been only in Christ that one can experience the forgiveness of sin. In verse 15, the Bible says that he is the image of the invisible God. That is, he is the exact representation of the Father. If, if you have seen me, Jesus would say to the Pharisees, you have seen the Father. It's that kind of statement that got Jesus in constant trouble with the religious establishment of his day. He was in essence saying, I and the Father are one. And the essence of that statement is true. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The book of Hebrews says it this way in its first chapter. He is the bright radiance of God's great glory, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Firstborn here functions differently than what we might ordinarily think. When we hear firstborn, we're thinking chronology. And there have been heretics through the history of the church that taught that this was something other than what's intended here, that this is about Jesus as a creation of God. There are sects and uh, heresies that teach Uh, this very thing but even the passage itself clears that up for us in verse 17 he is before all things and by all by him all things hold together that would address this notion that being firstborn is about order or chronology it's not about that at all the firstborn over all creation means that he is the most important one within creation he is at work before creation yes and within creation and within that creation he enjoys preeminence or first place he is the firstborn over all creation in verse 16 the bible says everything was created by him he is the creator god this is to press even deeper this notion that jesus is the image of the invisible god jesus is the person of the Trinity through whom the Father worked to hang the world on its axis. Jesus is the creator of all things, from the great big things to the much lesser things, from the mountains that catch our gaze, from the canyons that appear so beautiful to us, to the small cells, to the microscopic things that we can only see with advancements in technology. Jesus is the creator of all things things, which, by the way, would strongly imply authority over all things. One theologian said in the 19th century, there isn't one square inch over all of God's creation from the highest heights to the deepest, deepest depths over which Christ cannot say, mine. He is the creator of all things, and by virtue of this creation, all things are under his authority or his power. Everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, both the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. All things originate from him, and therefore all things are subject to him in terms of his authority. We'll see a little bit later in in the book of Colossians that there seems to have been some problem With the worship of angels or a fascination with angels and demons. The language of verse 16 makes it clear that even angels and demons are the product of his created power, creative power, and by virtue of his status as creator of all things, even those angels and demons are subject to his authority. Sometimes people have this warped understanding of how things are at work in the spiritual realm as though Satan and the devil and his demons are all running around doing what they want to, and from time to time God shows up and slaps their hand or comes behind them and cleans up the messes that they make, but that couldn't be further from the truth. One of the passages that really provides some insight here is Job 1, Satan coming before the Lord for permission to do what he intends to do to Job. Satan is on a short leash with a sovereign God neither he nor his or his minions may move apart from the permissive power of God who is in heaven and since God is good by his very nature good only those things even those evil things only those things which serve our good or his greater purpose may unfold in our life Jesus is Lord Even over the invisible, the thrones and the dominions, the rulers and the authorities, all things having been created through him and for his purpose. In verse 17, the Bible says, He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. The idea here of being before all things could be a reference to his preeminence, to his existence eternally in times past. What, what, we, what we know is it contributes to this high view of Jesus as the eternal Son of God, unchanging in all of his ways. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together, or they subsist by his power. It is not that God created the world as we know it and then, and then just sort of walked away to watch it all unfold. It is that at this very moment, he is actively holding the creation together as we know it. It isn't so much that God needs to move in order to bring judgment against the world. It it, it may be more that God would cease his activity to bring judgment against the world. If I understand this passage well, and I think that I do, God need only remove his hand and the universe as we know it would be flung into an unrecognizable existence, post-existence. He is the creator of all things and he is actively holding the world together as we observe it. He is actively holding your physical body together at this very moment. Every cell, every atom is held together by the sovereign power of Jesus over all things. Verse 18 says, he is also the head of the body, the church. The leader of every gospel church is Jesus. And the primary concern of every gospel church ought to be not so much what the people of the church prefer or what their desires are, but what Christ prefers what his good pleasure is and the performance of the things that serve his good pleasure within the body. Jesus is the Lord of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Again, this is not about order or chronology. It's not that Jesus was the first person to be resurrected from the dead. He was not. Even in his ministry, there were others who were raised from the dead most notably perhaps is Lazarus Jesus stands outside the tomb of Lazarus four days dead and says arise and come forth and that is precisely what Lazarus does I'd love to know what that experience was like for Lazarus but unless we meet in heaven it will remain a mystery right Jesus is not the firstborn from the dead chronologically What this passage intends is that he is the firstborn from the dead in terms of importance. Others had been raised from the dead, but none had been raised vicariously. In other words, none had been raised on behalf of others. The resurrection of Jesus is the down payment. It is the guarantee of our resurrection, even after the likeness of his own. By faith, we are spiritually joined together in Jesus so that his resurrection is, by faith, our resurrection. That makes it the most important resurrection in the history of all resurrections. I'll tell you what else makes the resurrection of Jesus unique and what makes all other resurrections a great big disappointment. Everyone except for Jesus would die again after their resurrection. That's why I'm anxious to hear from Lazarus about his opinions on this resurrection experience, right? Once you've crossed that threshold, I'm not certain you want to cross it again. It's a break with nature. It has been appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And here Lazarus is suffering with death twice. But Jesus is raised from the grave and raised eternally. This is not a momentary or temporary resurrection. Jesus is, is raised in, in the likeness which will know him when we meet him in the air or in heaven which awaits us by faith. He is the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place or preeminence in everything. Because of his status, because of his position, because of his resurrection and the importance of that resurrection, more important than all others. He is the only eternal resurrected one. Because of that, because of that, he ought to have preeminence in our life. Jesus really ought to be in the first position in all of our lives. Jesus really should be above all else in our experience. Verse 19 says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. All of the character of God, all of the attributes of God came to dwell in the body of Jesus. All of his righteousness and all of his justice, all of his holiness and all of his mercy, all that the Father is would abide in the body of Jesus and does even still. This is a remarkable verse. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. God who is omnipresent, he is everywhere. God who is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. All of this comes to abide in Jesus. God who is omniscient. He knows all things. All of that abides in the body of Jesus. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. He's the reconciler of all things. He has reconciled us to God. Our primary problem as human beings is that there's a great gulf fixed between us as sinners and God who is perfect in his righteousness. Jesus has reconciled us to the Father through the shedding of his blood, the blood of the cross, things on earth and things in heaven. Jesus has reconciled through the sacrifice of his body and the shedding of his blood. All over the book of Colossians, even in biblical study circles, Colossians is best known for a high view of Christ, a high Christology, and a celebration of who Christ truly is. There's a second theme that I think is really important in the book of Colossians. It begins in chapter 2. It really begins early in chapter 2, but is emphasized in verses 8 through 23. Verse, verse 3 tells us, in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 3 tells us that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. There seems to be some effort on the part of the Colossian church to uh, be a part of this cultural experience of being entertained by philosophy and, and high intellectual arguments. We've talked in weeks past about how that was the Friday night movie in first century culture, especially Greek culture, to go and to listen to a philosopher who would speak above our heads and say things we didn't entirely understand, but to sound eloquent in the process, that was high-value entertainment in the first century Greco-Roman experience. There seems to be an attraction to that within the city of Colossae, and and Paul appeals to that, noting in verse 3 that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. It's not worldly wisdom. It's not these high intellectual, philosophical arguments that you tend to be wowed by in your weekend entertainment, it is that Christ is the source of all wisdom, all truth, all real intelligence of of value. Then in verse 8, he warns them, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elemental forces of the world, and not based in Christ. So some take this verse to be a denigration of philosophy in general. So they would say we say, we out on philosophy because the Bible says, don't be led astray by, by philosophy. But I want you to note that what's being described here is a philosophy that is not based on Christ, a philosophy, an empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elemental forces of the world. So don't be resistant to indulging a little philosophy from time to time in so much as it helps you to advance your appreciation for what Jesus has done for you. I will admit, I am not a philosopher, nor do I enjoy philosophy. I I can remember taking philosophy in college, and I decided I I wanted to sort of be aware of what was happening in the field and picking up a book by Aristotle. And I read a hundred or so pages, and I, I came to the end of that section of of Aristotle's philosophy, I don't even remember what book it was at this point, but I realized that I'd just given an hour or so of my life and a hundred pages of reading to something I could have said in three or four or five words. A single sentence would have done, but he'd taken a hundred or more pages to say this simple thing. There can be benefit there. I want you to note that here we're dealing with a philosophy that is not rooted in Christ, that is rooted in the traditions of men. It's, it's empty deceit because it's not based in Christ. Look to verse 9. You have a, a, a series of empty philosophical systems that are addressed by Paul in these verses. Verse 9 says, For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. It's sort of a brief return to that high Christology in chapter 1, celebrating who Jesus is and all that he's done. Now in verse 11, he begins to take up these various philosophical systems that can beset you in your walk with Christ if you give yourself to them. He says in verse 11, you were also circumcised in him, with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of the Messiah or the Christ. He's dealing here with legalism. And Paul has dealt with this in a variety of New Testament letters that we've already considered. Everywhere Paul goes, he goes first to the synagogue and then to the Gentile, to the Jew first and then the Gentile. He adapts his missions methodology from Jesus. And because of this consistent exposure to Judaism, which in the first century has a bent toward legalism. The idea that we win the favor of God by doing the things God has commanded. He is always at war against that system in his ministry. One of the things that has stood out to me for a long time, and, 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 and I hope influences the way I preach and teach, I want it to, is that everywhere Paul goes, and, and, and when he talks about grace, they come to the conclusion that what Paul is saying is that it doesn't matter what we do. Now, Paul clarifies that, and and he says, that's not at all what I'm saying. In fact, in Romans 6, he says, should we sin more that grace may abound? He's echoing the criticism of his ministry, and then he follows that with absolutely not and explains why. But it is interesting to me that everywhere he preaches the gospel of grace, that's the impression that his naysayers pick up. In other words, in the ears of those who don't have ears to hear, whose eyes have been veiled to the gospel, the impression is that our works don't ever matter at all. And on some level, in principle, that is true. With regards to our salvation, our works don't ever matter at all. This misunderstanding of Paul's message is, in, to me, insightful with regards to the content of his preaching when he is among those people. He is consistently pressing in his ministry that we are saved by grace, through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. That we cannot trust our works to save us from our sin. In fact, that we must trust the works of someone else, namely the works of Jesus. All of our sin, past, present, and future, addressed by the shedding of Jesus' blood. This seems to be the heart of his ministry. Well embraced by those with eyes to see and ears to hear with a heart filled with faith, but greatly misunderstood by those whose eyes have been veiled to the power and the beauty of the gospel. Here in dealing with this circumcision issue, which is always the crux of the issue with those Jews who struggle to come away from that former system, he says our circumcision is the circumcision of the heart. Our circumcision is one conveyed by faith in Jesus. Our concern is not with the cutting back of the flesh. Our concern is with the circumcision of the heart. Our hearts were cold and calloused and dead and now have been revived in Jesus. Those old calluses have been removed. We have been quickened by the Spirit. Our hearts softened by the work of Jesus. We have been made new by the power of Christ. It's not the works that we do. It's the work of Jesus in us that saves us from our sin. Look at verse 12. Here, here I think if we have to identify a particular philosophical system, it's called perfectionism. Verse 12 says, Having been buried with him in baptism, you were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of death with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. Your favor with God is not contingent upon your ability to achieve some standard of righteousness in your life. You you can't make God love you more by being a better Christian along the way. He's on record that he loves you with all of his heart so much so that he would give his only son for you. But there are those who go the perfectionist route that would suggest to you that what we need is a relationship with Jesus, but that that relationship with Jesus will eventually create the perfection in us necessary in order to see the face of God at the end of our life. We were just in a conversation moments before we began about a gospel conversation with a lady who believed herself to be without sin. If you believe yourself to be without sin, or if you believe you have the human ability to be without sin, Let me just break some news for you. You don't. Your only hope is grace and mercy, and that grace and mercy can only be found in Jesus. You'll run into that from time to time. And usually, it's the product of a misrepresentation of various passages in the book of 1 John. It, it doesn't take a rocket, science, rocket scientist to see them in their context and understand them plainly, but that is typically where those misrepresentations can originate from. I was telling our brother here before we started, there used to be an evangelist on the campus at Mississippi State who would, was kind of a hateful dude, and he believed him, so when you would engage him in conversation, he would tell you he had no sin. Trust me. You have sin. At the, at the present moment, you have sin. And it's not just that you have sin. It is that your very nature is sinful. And the only recourse for such a nature is the power of the gospel. In verse 15, Paul addresses what I'll call here, here angel olatry or the worship of angels regarding angels and or demons um, as a source of power, giving worship to them, giving them more attention than they're deserving of. You see this sometimes in Catholic circles. I, 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 was, I was on a hunting trip in South Texas years ago and attended a church service there, and, and this was the focus. And about halfway through, it dawned on me that here I am in this, in this deeply Catholic culture. It's sensible that this would be the topic of discussion on a Sunday morning in a Baptist church in this setting, especially when you consider the influence of South American and Central American uh, culture on Catholicism in that setting. There's a tendency to go this way. Verse 15, the Bible says, He, he being Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them by him. By Jesus Rulers and authorities, which is a New Testament way of making reference to angels and demons, he triumphed over them, and with respect to those who had at one time in history grabbed for the glory of the Father and been cast out of his presence, they were publicly disgraced at the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you thought we are a little bit off in reading those philosophical systems into verses 11 through 15... Paul addresses it in a more forward way in verses 16 and following. He says, Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. Don't let anyone judge you on the basis of that old covenant system. Don't, don't let anyone judge you on the basis of your observance of the Sabbath. Don't let, don't let anyone judge you on the basis of your participation and those uh, festivals or celebrations that were to be honored under the Old Covenant, those were a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. In other words, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those Old Covenant expectations. He is the fulfillment of every ceremonial obligation. He is our Passover lamb. We don't celebrate the Passover anymore. Because it's not our doorpost that we remember having been covered in the blood of the Lamb. It is our very life that has been covered in the blood of the Lamb. We don't observe a Sabbath, which by the way was never Sunday. It was always Saturday. We don't observe a Sabbath rest because Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Those things are no longer the metric by which we are judged. They were a mere shadow of what was to come. What was to come now has come in the person of Jesus, the fulfillment of all of those obligations and expectations. I would go further than that and say that Jesus is the fulfillment of every moral obligation of the old covenant. He, he fulfilled the law of righteousness in perfection. His work, his perfection sufficient to a credit to our account and to merit good standing before the Father on the day of judgment. There's another system that's referenced here in verse 18, what I'd call a philosophical system. It's called asceticism. It means to do your body some harm or to suffer real pain and anguish in an effort to be brought closer to God. Paul says in verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm and inflated without cause by this unspiritual mind. We have a little deeper insight into this problem of angel worship here. They they believe themselves to be tapping into some visionary realm, and although that would seem far-fetched for us, you wouldn't have to go far even in America to find instances of this appearing. And from time to time, I'll bump into people who believe themselves in a variety of ways to have some access to a visual realm. Let's personalize this again. If you believe yourself, unless your name is Joseph or Daniel, I really highly doubt that's the case. God has revealed himself in the scripture. There is no longer a need for these kinds of visions and dreams. Everything God intended to say, he has said in the scripture. If your vision, if your word from God, if your dream is consistent with the Bible, it's unnecessary. And if it's inconsistent with the Bible, it's heretical. So there's, there's strong limitations on these experiences. There are times when God works in frontier places where there is no gospel representation to reveal himself in visions and dreams and people are truly born again from their sin. I'm not discounting the power of God to work in those ways. There are legitimate instances where such things unfold. But I know of no valid, no legitimate claim to this kind of experience in a Western context where there is access to the preaching of the gospel. If, if that sounds skeptical, I would note here that that is perfectly consistent with the way God worked in the New Testament. Where the gospel was established and settled in there was a dissipation of God's work in what we might understand as miraculous ways. In other words, the ability to speak in other languages supernaturally, the ability to grant healing to those who were sick, or even life to those who had died, sight to those who were blind, those kinds of activities were limited to frontier places where the authority of Jesus or the apostles was being established so that the message might be well embraced by those who heard. But as the gospel advances, as the gospel, as the church is established in certain precincts, the activity of God in those ways seems to dissipate such that even the apostle Paul seems limited in his ability to grant healing for those who have exposure to the gospel. I would cite, and one of the examples I go to is Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 3. He's with Paul, and he's sick almost unto death. This is the same Paul who's actively healing by the power of God's Spirit many who are sick and lame all throughout the book of Acts. But where the gospel is firmly established, God pulls back from working in such ways. Which is sensible, right? Because Jesus didn't come to work miracles. Jesus came to make the message of the gospel known. Jesus did not come primarily to heal physical hurts. Jesus came to remedy our most pressing spiritual need by his death and resurrection. This idea of asceticism in verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on ascetic practices. This has been a part of Christianity more recently than what you might expect and is even a part of the practice of Christianity in some parts of the world today, an unnecessary practice one of one of those historical figures that I have been drawn to in in my time in ministry is is George Whitfield. Whitfield was a rock star. Whitfield was Billy Graham before there was a Billy Graham. In the latter part of the first Great Awakening, even up until the beginning of the second Great Awakening, he was a man that God used in remarkable ways. I'll give you, for instance, there. There's, there's, there's accounts of him preaching to 30,000 people. And a man would carry his voice and positioning himself just above the crowd so that his voice would carry across the crowd, not too high and not too low, with a special box he had built just for those preaching opportunities. And yet he was a man who suffered greatly throughout his ministry. We, we, we have in our mind this picture of colonial America where everybody loves Jesus and holds hands and sings Kumbaya. And that could not be further from the truth. As Whitfield's ministry began, church attendance in the, in the states or in the colonies was at less than 5%. He was greatly persecuted, physically persecuted virtually everywhere he went to preach, being knocked off of his stage at times by rocks and objects being thrown from the crowd, only to pick himself up and wipe the blood and begin to preach again. But early in his life, before being born again, before coming to a full understanding of the gospel, he gave himself to ascetic practices, so much so that he nearly lost his fingers when he determined to go through an English winter without coat or gloves to suffer that he might draw near to God. Such acts of asceticism are unnecessary, and they take away from the gospel. Because what do they suggest? That it's not Jesus who draws us near, but our willingness or ability to All of these are empty philosophical systems that cannot serve your benefit, that do not draw you near because the gospel of Jesus Christ is our only means of drawing close to the Father. Verse 23 sums this all up. Although these have a reputation of wisdom, in other words, although these sound good, people may practice them. By promoting ascetic practices, humility, and severe treatment of the body, they're not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. Not only do they not help you draw near to God, they don't do the very thing they purport to do. They don't make you more righteous. They don't make you more godly. They don't curb self-indulgence, but guess what does? The abiding presence of Jesus in us through the gospel that's the only hope of curbing self-indulgence when our heart is turned by the hand of god we walk away from the things of this world and to the light of the gospel to the fruit of the spirit that abides in us chapter three and we're not going to be able to get to all these things i tell you what let's go to chapter three and verse 18 and the last key theme on your outline the christian home This is really broader than what we might tend to think when we think of Christian home. This is not just the family unit. This is the family unit and all others that might reside within that home. This is everyone who's there. So in a first century Colossian context, this is mom and dad. This is son and daughter. This is husband and wife. This is master and servant or slave. Now, we don't have a fraction of the time it would take to unpack the dynamics of slavery in a first century context and how that's much different than slavery as we're familiar with that phenomenon in American history. But trust me, it's greatly different, which is not to say it's a positive or a good thing or even an acceptable thing. It is merely that the reality is being addressed in this household code wives verse 18 be submissive to your husbands as is fitting to the lord husbands love your wives and don't be bitter toward them there's a little added information here but here, here's something i want to show you that speaks to this place we found ourselves in culture earlier in chapter three specifically in verse number 11 paul said in christ there is not greek and jew circumcision and uncircumcision." Barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Often when making the same comment, he includes there is neither male nor female. And, and that would be suitable to this particular context. It would fit there, and it, and it can fit there in our understanding of what Paul is describing. In other words, all of the ethnic, racial, gender, financial, socioeconomic barriers have all been broken down in Christ. In Christ, we have become a single family, regardless of background, ethnicity, experience, socioeconomic status. We are all one in Christ. There is perfect equality. Now, what the culture wants you to think is that equality is about sameness. And what I want you to hear and what is clear in the Bible and what is clear, I think, for people with just common sense, even outside of the gospel, is that equal does not mean same. Equal has never meant same, and equal will never mean same. And right-headed people don't want equal to mean same. I, I don't want my wife to be just like me. That would create problems. And I don't think she wants me to be just like her, for that would create similar problems. We are all one in Christ, no one better than the other. But that does not negate the very clear distinctions that are made between male and female, father and mother, husband and wife, parents and children. It doesn't negate those boundaries that have clearly been established by God in the order of creation. It wasn't a problem for the apostle Paul because he says what he says in verse 11 and then takes up this household code which clearly establishes order within the home almost in the same breath. Wives be submissive to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord husbands love wives and don't be bitter toward them. There's a word to each specific office held within the husband-wife relationship. Verse 20, he says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. I was listening to something coming out that sort of refreshed my heart a little bit and justified some thoughts that I'd had. I was listening to a discussion on on family in general, and it was related to the broader discussion of, of obeying God, but This particular pastor was talking about a son that was especially difficult as a 10-year-old boy, and he always wanted to know why. Do your children want to know why? And the answer for me is because I am your daddy and I said. That's the answer. And sometimes I I, I feel a little terse and short in saying that, and sometimes I think there is a place for camping out and giving some explanation as to why. But the argument in this particular instance, which justified either my sinfulness or my rightness, was was that when we go to God, like we go to a parent wanting to know why and to unpack all of the variables involved in the decision that the father has made, that's not obedience, that's agreement. And and, and his point was, I I want you, 10-year-old son, to do what I said because I'm 45, and I'm your father, and I know better, and I said to do it without this long explanation as to why this command has been given. As it relates to our relationship to God, there are going to be times when we cannot understand the why, and we do it because he is eternal, and he is eternally wise, and he knows What ought to be done? Now, I'm probably misrepresenting the intent of this particular pastor and feeling justified in not answering for many of those wives when it comes to my boys, but the principle stands. The, The moral responsibility of a child within the home is to obey their parents. It is good for them to learn order and authority and the structure, the stability that that provides for them. They may not know it in the moment. They may not understand or appreciate it for many years to come, but it is ultimately good for them. And I can give you example after example after example of how this is deeply impacting children, and it's deeply impacting our society, and it's deeply impacting the church as well, as there's no regard for authority, no understanding of the, the, the natural order that God has established in creation. Everyone's an authority now, right? People think because I have Google, I can Google search. Now I'm an expert. I'm an authority on everything. I can make all of the decisions. I know better than people who've been given to this study for 40 or 50 or 60 years. And that's just one example of the breakdown of order and authority in our hearts and minds. God knew what he was doing when he ordered creation as he did, and he has not changed his mind with regards to that order. Verses 22 through 24 deal with the slave and master dynamic. Let's work through this just quickly and I know we're out of time. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord and not for men, knowing that you'll receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, but the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done and there is no favoritism. Master, supply your slaves with what is right and fair, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Now again, the dynamics are different. And we don't have even the beginnings of time to to unpack them, but slavery in most instances in a first century setting was an agreement entered into freely by the slave who enslaved himself in some way to a master in return for some financial gain. Usually it was the product of someone finding themselves in an unfortunate financial position and the only recourse for them was to enslave themselves to a master for a season in order to be able to get through that time in their life. It had a beginning, it had an end, and it was entered into, in, in many cases, by the free choice of the person who was to be enslaved for that season. Even though an unfair system, a system that was oppressive, a system that preyed upon the disadvantaged and uh, the, the those who... Uh, you know, if you're in a certain class, you're never going to find yourself in that kind of position where you have to enter into such an arrangement. And so the, the culture, the society is set in such a way that it was given to feeding this need for servitude within the home, within the culture, and even within some industry. But e- even in that, even within... An unfair system, and I'm aware of the ways that what I'm going to say here can be abused and what Paul has said can be abused, but even within the framework of an unfair system, your concern is to do what is right without regard for the circumstances that are beyond your control. Say it to the kids this way. You control what you can control, and and you leave everything else in the hands of God, and you trust his good providence over your life. That's just a good life principle. That's even broader than a Christian principle. Masters, you're to provide for and take care of the needs of those who are under your care. If you're here as a boss, as an employer, as a supervisor, you are to provide for and care for the needs of those who are under your care. If you're here with an oppressive boss or employer who's just a clown or a jerk, you ought to do what you have been assigned to do, not as unto man, but as unto the Lord And leave those things that are beyond your control in the hands of a good and faithful God who always does what is right. The primary message here in in all of Colossians is that Jesus is big and he is powerful and he is good. And by the gospel, we may find refuge in him. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for these moments to spend together reflecting on the goodness of your son. God, forgive us where we come short. Remind us and refresh us at the thought tonight that our salvation is in Christ and in Christ alone. Lord, thank you that our salvation was set 2,000 years ago in a rugged cross and an empty grave. It's in his name we pray. Amen.